Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and children of all ages, I welcome you to episode 70 of Psychotherapy. I think that was uh, the intro to Ringling Brothers and Barnum, Bar- <laughs> Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, which I went to when I was a lad. Over at what is now the Grove, it used to be Farmer's Market, but in their parking lot, why am I still doing the announcer voice? Okay. It was in their parking lot um, at the time when I went, maybe in virtual reality, because of my age, maybe I wasn't able to do that. This is episode 70. Looks like we made it. No one ever thought we would, but we did. I don't know if anyone didn't think we would make it, but we're here. So first off... Thank you so much for listening. And if you're listening for the first time, you son of a... No, I mean, if you're listening for the first time, thank you as well. In this episode, as you know, I have done these round number episodes and always had trouble. So 10, 20, 30. I could go all the way up to 70. Are you impressed? Counting by tens? I would do one, do it again, do it again, even if I didn't realize it was that episode. But this one, I did in one. I don't know if that makes the episode better, but I was pretty proud. So practice makes perfect, or some people say perfect practice makes perfect. I heard that once. It doesn't make any sense. How are you supposed to practice perfect? In this episode, I am not looking and reading something. You can tell how flawlessly I could use a a pelotometer. I think that's that bicycle where you read teleprompters. I talk about social media, how social media is hooking us by the fear. Hooking us by the fear is my new line. They're just getting us to click by making us scared on what's going on with the the potential health crisis going on in the world right now. I go on to talk about how being scared is not a solution. The fear that everyone is spreading right now on social media is not going to do you any good. Then my second little story is about failure versus trying. And <laughs> am I failing at reading on audio? It's funny because it's not even like it's video where you can see my eyes tracking. You're just listening to me so I could pause it. But I still like you to hear how hard it is for me to read off this piece of paper that I just wrote. So it's not like the words are things I can't read. I wrote them. But I talk about failure versus not trying. Meaning that there are two people. One person continues to fail and fail and fail. And they're the same age and all things being equal. And the other person is not trying. They probably live in a similar situation. They probably live a similar life. And you think they're the same. Maybe even the person who's not trying seems a lot better off because they're less stressed. They are able to maintain a more positive attitude or whatever the case is because they're not trying. And how I've met a lot of people who mistake those two individuals. The person who is trying their hardest and failing and the person who is not trying. So I'm trying to differentiate with that in my second story. I go into my kind of therapeutic jazz session which no one really likes jazz, and no one really likes therapy, so I don't know if I'm selling you on that. But what I mean is I just kind of, you know, someone once told me that they had a spiritual rap session, and I thought that was the worst thing I had ever heard. But it made sense, and that's kind of what it is, just free-flowing. But I do go into how I'm going to stop apologizing for telling a story multiple times. There are certain tentpole moments in my life that go in directions that are necessary for the narrative I'm trying to create. I don't know who's listening to this for the first time, and I don't know who's listening to it for the third time around, and you've listened to every episode. So I'm trying to cater to both audiences. So I have a tendency to keep saying, you've heard this before, I'm going to try and back off on that. And then I end talking about how being bad at something is good. Because if you get good at being bad at something, that means you're trying new things all the time. And then I use a line towards the end, which is failure is a ticket at the door of success. 
that you do not get to enter the door of success without failure. And what number of failures you have to have before that success and what level of success that is, that's personal. Some people, as we know, and as this particular individual, who is me, really has a hard time dealing with is nepotism, where people who don't try get the highest positions in film and television or even in government, and that's hard to deal with, but that's not our narrative. We did not put ourselves or we were not put on this planet to have that kind of charmed, low-effort life. And no one ever wanted to read the story of a person whose family gave them everything. That's not interesting. Americans like to hear the story of the comeback kid, the person who came from nothing or lost it all and came back. And I think that's your narrative. And that is awesome and worth telling. So be proud of it. That's all I have to say for the intro. I don't want to get emotional, so I won't. But 70 episodes, for me, that's somewhere on par with 200 hours of work, a little more. And I've done it for the simple reason of trying to keep you entertained, keep you smiling, and create some kind of laughter in the face of pain. Thank you for listening. I'm Jet Dunlap. This is Psychotherapy, Episode 70. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it is with a heavy heart and great sadness that I make this announcement to you. Amidst all the rumors and speculation, clickbait and news that you've been seeing on social media, I hate to be the one to break this to you. You probably only have 30, 40, 50, 60, and in some rare cases, 70 years left to live. That's it. I'm so sorry. I'm probably the first one to tell you this, but uh, being human is a fatal job. And with the new information we have about the coronavirus that everyone is picking up on right now, they are panicking, and they are freaking out, and they are scrambling, and they are spreading misinformation. And the reason I start so dramatically is because... I'm a drama queen. <laughs> it's really this, guys. Here's the deal. I've been talking to some people, even family members. Let's just say it's not my mother, and uh, it's not Gina. She's not really related to me, let's be honest. She's my wife. But there are some people who have spoken to me with real concern. They are looking to stock up on gasoline. They are filling their pantries with cans. Going into a preparation that is maybe a little hysterical. Is it good to be prepared? Absolutely. Should you have band-aids and disinfectant with you when you go anywhere uh, where you're not near medical supplies just in case you get a cut? Sure. When I cut my finger open a couple, well, almost like a year ago, Gene had just sharpened a knife without me knowing, and I sliced my finger open and I had to get stitches. So it was a good thing that we had quick and easy medical supplies. But here's what's really going on. The people who are obsessing with this catastrophe for the most part, in my experience, listen to those two precursors to make sure that, uh, or warnings so that I'm not stepping on anyone's toes here, but uh, here's the case. Can you hear my smile? You are, those people, not you particularly, are finding something to focus on because that is their personality. 
they are the people who believe the world has been crumbling to the ground under other circumstances. If you want to look through their newsfeed, you will find panic. Now, what does panic appeal to? Well, it appeals to a spike in our adrenaline and our dopamine. What does social media do? They, they being social media programmers, the people who work for these companies, Mark Zuckerberg and his team and the rest of the people on Instagram and TikTok or whatever it is, their interest is to make sure that you stay hooked. Is there a better way of hooking you than panic? Anyone who's ever took any class on psychology, understood the field of sales, if you're evil, or worked in any business where compelling someone to be afraid is the best way to get them to purchase. Do you understand that? If I said to you, hey, listen, if you get this fire extinguisher in the off chance that your car ever catches on fire, you will be better off because then your car won't melt. If I said to you, if you don't get this fire extinguisher, you may be the singular cause for the immediate and sudden death of your child, that would be a little more compelling, right? So the people who obsess, who have OCD, who are bored, who have nothing better to do, are killing time at work, are trying to make you scared. Now, do I need to tell you that in the case of this particular situation or in the case of your life daily, the thing that is most dangerous is panic. The thing that is most dangerous is letting your body get into a state and mind, get into a state of irrational thinking. And you've seen it. You've had these situations in your life. You've witnessed them. Where someone starts to get really afraid, they start to do things that are out of the norm, then someone else, then someone else. That virus spreads far faster than something like this. Now, this show is not going to be about giving you the facts of viral statistics. I have a lot of them. I talked to a physician, two physicians actually, this morning after Gina's spin class. Gina's spin class, if you've ever taken a spin class, is one of the most sweaty things you can possibly do. Well, you know, with your clothes on, depending on who you are. Anyway, it's very sweaty. The two doctors that were in her class, well, actually one doctor and then the other doctor I met up with afterwards, but he was also at the gym. They're in a public place where people are excreting bodily fluids, and they're still there. We were joking and laughing about this situation. Now, I will step on some people's toes here, and that's okay. Here's what they told me, these physicians who work in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles. So a big city, and they're GPs, general practitioners. They said that what's happening most in their doctor's offices is the people who are anti-vaxxers are coming in to get themselves and their children immunized. Everything's theoretical until it hits a certain point and then people start to become more rational. And I joked with him saying, well, there's a reason none of us have polio. Now you're thinking, what's polio? That's from a million years ago. My first girlfriend's uncle had polio. When I was growing up, I saw victims of polio. Not that had contracted it within my lifetime, obviously. But this was a disease that spread at a very high rate. Now, taking the preparations like being vaccinated against the flu, these are choices you can make. But you may be a little more, you may have a right to be more afraid if you are not keeping yourself at a high state of, how would I put it, uh, health, just healthy. And let's talk about this for a second. I mean, I'm already talking about it. Why do I have to preface that? Staying healthy has a lot of benefits. What did I say to you when I ran into a doctor today? Where were the doctor and I? We were both at the gym. Why was the doctor at the gym? And I've talked to Mike plenty of times. He loves our class. He was telling Gina and I he couldn't keep up with us because we do the standing thing where we don't touch the bars 
on the exercise bike. We just pedal in the air like we're on a unicycle. And we, Gina and I have a competition because I uh, cycle at the front of the room. Who can do it longer? Now, what is that telling you? First off, when I started this last end of January, I couldn't do that, but I pushed myself. What I'm trying to tell you is you are beautiful no matter what you are. I've talked about this before. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And if you feel you're beautiful truly in your heart of hearts, that is more powerful than anything. But health doesn't care about your beauty. Did you know that? I'm going to be real with you right now. I don't like using that phrase, but it's true. Health is important. And I'll be sincere for a second. Some of the most healthy people I ever met when I was a kid, one of them was a guy who graduated West Point, and another one of them was a personal trainer who was a vegetarian. At the time, vegetarians were not popular. I am now. Both of them would talk to me about how their body was a temple. And I like that analogy because let's say you're religious, let's say you're spiritual, let's say whatever. Your connection to the eternal as a human comes through your human body. So paying attention to and being healthy is a crucial thing. I mean, does that not seem obvious? So those habits that we've picked up over the years that are bad, fast food, smoking, drinking, whatever your vices are that you've put off, those are things that make you far more susceptible to these kind of pathogens. So taking care of yourself in a physical level is the first thing, right? I mean, you want to have a fire extinguisher at your house, and I have one in my car. Not a sponsor. Fire extinguisher is not a sponsor. But that's because it's better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it, right? But the first step to that is making sure you don't pour gasoline around the front of your house and light matches. So there's a prevention and there's a worst case scenario. The reason I'm stressing this is because I'm trying to bring people's attitude who listen to this show down to reality. Be healthy. Be smart. Take things as they are. Don't take them as people who are panicking have. If you look on social media right now, and I I told you on the last episode, I think that social media is a very toxic thing unless you're able to ingest it as entertainment. If you look at it as as a movie, like let's say you were watching a movie from the future and they had a bunch of newspaper articles, but the newspaper articles didn't affect you because it's in a fantasy world, like newspaper from a novel. A newspaper that's read inside a novel or a movie is not real. Look at it that way. So they have to get you to click their page. I used to work for these companies, not in the social media field, but in this world. And I did consult for social media. If you click, they have won. So how are they going to get more clicks? Telling you that a person has died in the United States from the coronavirus. Beware, one in every 330 million people who are sick and in their late 50s who are already vulnerable are dying. Now, by the time this comes out, the numbers will be different, but we already know that. What you need to do is immunize yourself against BS or immunize yourself against panic. And that's in general. Second part of this, my conversation with you, is that when I was talking to this person who is a little nervous in my family, I said, it is good to be prepared. It is good to be rational, but I will not be afraid. Because giving into fear, just like in two episodes where I talked about your inspiration, your desire to go into a field that you love, your belief that you can do something spreads, so does fear. And especially if you're a parent, you must stay tough. You must not panic. That's all. And I thought this was a good way to talk about disciplining my disappointment and that being a crucial thing in my life. But it's also very important to discipline your attitude towards things. Stimulus and response. Distancing that that point. 
Like I said, everything happens within stimulus and response. You read a thing, you make a choice on how to feel about it. Then you make a choice about how to act on it. Some of the posts that are attached to rational articles are insane. This one woman said, make sure you wear a mask, make sure you wear rubber gloves, make sure you do this. And the article attached to it was a CDC news article. And the CDC's first thing was don't panic. Sure, wear a mask if you're sick. So you don't spread the disease. That's being courteous. But it didn't say any of the things she had said in the post. I don't want to spend too much time on this. But I want my audience to know, be rational, be smart. And if you hear this 20 years from now, I want you to remember that at this period in time, people were starting to get very nervous and that that is not a solution. Freaking out, not going to work, not keeping society intact. And sure, I've had my problems with society and I've told you maybe not to go to college or that you don't want to be a cog in the machine. Sure, but that's you weren't going to quit today anyway, so don't start infecting the people around you, not with the virus, but with fear. I don't want to spend any more time on that. So thank you for listening to this part. I know it's a a little odd, but I've just been seeing a lot of really counterintuitive moves of people. And we all knew this would happen, right? We don't know what information is real anymore. And then our brain takes over and creates even a worse story. So it's a dangerous place to be, but you're too smart for that. And I know you are. The story I wanted to talk to you about today will surprisingly involve me. One of the reasons, even though I know many people and I know many of their tales, that I don't tell other people's stories is that I'm getting a version of it told by them. And like I've said before, when we tell our own story to another person, uh, it's usually going to be painted with more colorful strokes. And that's a stupid fancy way of saying that we're going to exaggerate. One of the reasons I tell you my stories is that you probably at this point have a pretty good idea that I... I'm definitely not incapable of stretching the truth or lying. Like anyone else, I can do that. But I have a really hard time not saying (laughs) what it is I even mean not to say. So I'll say to myself, I'm not going to tell this person whole damn. I'm not going to tell this person X, Y, Z, and I end up doing it because uh, my words come out faster than my brain can compute. Now, I don't say ridiculous, horrible things to people because that's just not my habit. That's usually why I use my story. So this will be a little bit of my story. The bigger point of this is that I want you to understand a very big difference in two people. Someone who has failed over and over again is not the same as someone who hasn't tried. Two people, and I guess this is even my story, so all that preamble is, I don't know why I'm telling you what I'm going to say when clearly you know that I don't know what I'm going to say. Two people who exist and you know them in your life. Someone who constantly fails. People would have looked at them and said, jack of all trades, master of none. So parts of this are going to involve my own life. You go out there and you try a business. Well, let's just use me. When I left school, I tried to get a job at a uh, movie theater because I liked movies. I applied on paper six times to the Man 9 Theater near us. In Granada Hills. Then I applied at other movie theaters in the area, the Pacific, and I was rejected by all of them. I used to have to keep an application with my information next to me because I didn't know how to spell all this stuff. So I'd have like a template that my mom had written so I'd know how to do this because you know spelling and reading were really tough on me. And I'd also sometimes pretend I didn't have my glasses so I could ask a manager or something a word I didn't understand. So I was really having a hard time because of my extreme level of dyslexia. But I would apply at all these places. 
And by the time I ended up getting a job at McDonald's, I had applied probably about 45 times at about 12 places, meaning that I had applied multiple times, thinking if I get my application in there a lot, I'm going to have more chances in the stack. Now, that detail in the story could be lost, but that's very important. I applied at all those places, and the only place that took me was McDonald's. You could look at that story as the exact same story as a kid who went into the first place, which was McDonald's, and they got hired. They may have even been hired at a higher level than me, but there's a difference between those two kids. I had put out 42 applications. They had put out one. After McDonald's, once I started working there, every person who would come in, because I worked in an ice skating rink, whether they were celebrities, I met Keanu Reeves there, I met Kiefer Sutherland there, I met Cuba Gooding Jr., I met Martin Short, I met countless people there that I can't even remember all of them, Ronald Reagan. I would always ask people if they were hiring, or I'd ask them about their job. Keanu Reeves, who I got to have lunch with, I talked to him about his profession. So again, here are two kids, one person who works at McDonald's, just serving fries, going home, partying, or doing whatever they do, but they're not doing what I was doing, which was networking. If you looked at us both on paper, I guess I would look like the line that is doing more poorly. And clearly I didn't have the right phrasing for that. But the reason I say that is that I wasn't, but then I was the worst employee, but I was slower than some because reading off the cue and everything on the menu is a little slower. I also talked to people and got to know them. So maybe my efficiency wasn't as good, but these two people look identical, but they're not. I end up leaving McDonald's because I meet someone who can get me a job in another place. I'm also applying everywhere still while I'm there. I end up getting a job at uh, at Good Guys, even though I had applied at Circuit City a bunch of times. When I go to Good Guys, I become a salesperson. Someone else goes to college. Someone else goes somewhere else. And on paper, again, they're more successful. They may have even been put there by a connection by a family member. More times than not, that's what it was. But what is Jet? How many times has Jet applied at this point in his life? Probably on... A level of about 52, 53 times that I've actually filled out a paper application. Because even before I was ever taught anything, double your rate of failure, that's the key to success. I never heard those uh, phrases way until my late 20s, but I had a sense of it. I knew that I could make up in numbers what I lacked in skills, and that was really important. So I don't want to go into the detail of everything I did, but if, if you had looked at my life at any point, you'd think, oh, well, this guy's not even doing as well as this kid. When they graduate college, they have debt I didn't. I was still working. I was making forty-five dollars to $50,000 a year when I was in my early 20s. Then I continued. But the important thing was I was learning sales. And what was sales other than psychology? And then you can do two things when you're in sales. You can do more than two, but these are the two I saw as an option. You can keep a customer, which because I was in high-end audio sales, I've told you stories before that my quality of personality with my clients made it so that I can make a lot more money. So you could be a monster and just say anything. One of the funny lines I would use about that, well, it's really up to you if it's funny, was that there were guys who I worked with where if a customer said, uh, does this uh, stereo have DTS, uh, THX, Dolby surround sound? And then the salesperson would say, do you want it to? And the customer would say yes. And then they go, okay, yes. That's a real salesperson. Those guys existed back then. And that was the say anything. So they just agree with you so you get the sale. But the problem with that was, and I saw it early, was that you didn't, and I had some good mentors at the time. You didn't, one of them being Vaskin, the guy I talked about the other day, you didn't get to keep that customer for a life cycle. The best advice I would get were from the guys who I'd meet who came in the door who were in sales themselves. And they would go to a place like ours because we had $10,000, $20,000 audio equipment and they had that kind of money. So I'd learned quality lessons. And they said, Take care of all your customers and they'll take care of you. So 
When someone was looking at a cordless phone one time, Mr. Freeze, who's a real person, he came in looking for a cordless phone, and I helped him. No one else wanted to because there wasn't enough of what we call GP, gross profit, in the product. You weren't going to make any money on cordless phones. But I helped him with the cordless phone. Then I helped him next time he came in for some component cable. And none of these products were making me any money, right? But I helped him and helped him and helped him. And then he was one of the first people in the entire state to buy a plasma screen TV. Now, of course, I'm 30. So let's just say this happened to someone who's not me. So whoever this guy was who sold the first plasma screen, it sold for about $11,000. And then that was just the screen for the outside of his movie theater room. And he ended up getting a whole home theater system that was insanely advanced. But the reason he worked with me was because I was working with him on the small things. Later on, I go out and I start working at AT AT&T. Take that same person who's working alongside of me, the person who looks like they're doing the same stuff I am. They're not trying. They just keep getting moved from place to place or they stay at the same job and they've been there 10 years. I'm still moving around. It looks like every time I change a job, especially to members of my family or people who saw me, when is this guy going to settle down? When is this guy going to get a job that he sticks with? When is this guy going to start really climbing the corporate ladder? It looked like failure. Almost all entrepreneurs look like they are complete and utter failures until they're not. But there's someone out there who's not trying. They just keep being fed and fed and fed into the next thing. And I'm not trying to say that that's wrong, but I'm saying don't mistake those two people because if you mistake those two people, you're going to live in a way that won't be beneficial to you. We'll get to that part in a second. So I keep doing that. I end up going to AT&T and I end up getting promoted. This is flashing forward a bit. I moved to Santa Cruz for a while, kind of zen out for a bit. I'm still working in sales at Circuit City, but I get to have a little bit of a college experience that I didn't have. I was going to junior college at the time and having fun with my friends, living right on the ocean on East Cliff. It was beautiful. But when I come back, I end up getting a job at AT AT&T and I climb the ranks fast. I'm not the best salesperson, but I know what I want and I'm good at my customers and I'm good at playing the game of uh, the politics of the company. When I was teaching my sales division about how to become successful, some of them were doing those say anything deals that I talked about at my first job. But some of them would listen to stories like this. I had a woman come in one time to, it was singular at the time back in Woodland Hills, and she had a walker. Now, all the guys ran away, of course. We're all sitting up there like sharks. There was a lot of money in cell phone sales. The guy at our store was probably making 160, 170. All the guys had new uh, sports cars and uh, motorcycles. Now, this lady comes in with her walker, and she you can see she has one of those clamshell phones, and it has her phone number on the back of it. Old lady, probably in her 80s. Everyone runs away because they all know that she's going to just say, why is it every time I do this, it doesn't work? Why is it when it makes a jingly noise if I pick it up like this? And she's holding the wrong end of the phone to her ear. I can't hear anything. I sit down with the lady. Now, why did I sit down with the lady? You don't ask. Because I have a grandmother. Because I love my grandmothers. Uh, I lost my father's mother back in 1998, but she was tremendous and I loved her deeply. And uh, I have a grandmother who's still living, my only grandparent still living, my mom's side, uh, Marianne, Nana, and she means the world to me. So when this person came in, I thought, how would I feel if my grandmother walked in somewhere and was mistreated? And I wouldn't feel good. I'd be actually angry about that. So I helped this lady. I sat down, there was a little table, and I helped her program her phone. She had some silly questions. She had questions that seemed obvious to me if I was to detach myself from the reality that I knew there were people like this. I could have been frustrated, but the store wasn't even busy. I sat down there and probably for an hour programmed all her numbers in and wrote out a little sheet of what those numbers were that she put up on her fridge. 
Now, this story doesn't always end this way, but it's important to see it the way it pans out here. Other employees had far better numbers that day. Numbers meaning sales. So that day, my sales may have suffered because I helped this person. About a week and a half later, a guy comes in with my card and he says, hey, I need to activate, it was around like 32 phones. And the guys at the front desk who worked with me, they're always trying to see who I'm stealing the sales from because... Again, this is the old school sales guys. Ever, if you're getting a big deal, what's called a laydown, someone just comes in and asks for all that, they must think that, oh, you must you must be stealing it. The guy comes out and written on the back of his card is his, his mom had said something. And so his mom was the woman I helped who had the walker. He came in and bought all these phones from me because he could not stop telling me how, how happy his mother was with me and how thrilled she was that I helped her. And because I helped this guy's mom, he came in and bought all these phones for me, which in actual dollars ended up being probably somewhere around like four or five grand. And I was one of the top salesperson for that period. The whole point of that story was, is that even though I looked like I was failing that day, if you took it under a microscope, I was actually planting the seeds of something that was going to make me far more successful in the future. Now, even if that hadn't panned out that way, I had done the right thing. Do you see what I'm saying? So when I'm financially up or financially down, what I do is I stay and I've said this before, but I stay focused on the action. The beginning of this podcast was about not panicking over something that is not worthy of panicking. Well, panicking never makes sense. Even if the problem becomes a problem you have to deal with immediately, it's in front of your face, panic doesn't do you any good. But in this case, it was doing the right thing for the right reasons, and then it ended up being better. The reason I stress this whole point and that little story, I have countless stories like that that I used to tell from stage where I would tell people about how being good brought reward. There are plenty of stories I have where being good brought no reward, but doing the wrong thing and getting the immediate satisfaction of a higher commission check, or in your case, getting away with something, whatever it is, whatever it is you do for a living or whatever it is you do in life, it will plague you even emotionally later. So the negative impact of that is going to hit you at some point. But the reason I tell this story is I was talking to someone recently and they were looking at two people, one who seemed like they were much better off on paper. They just bought a almost million dollar house, which the person I was talking to didn't know that this was at the end of their financial resources. If their job does anything, they're not going to be able to make the payment. But the person I was talking to was seeing that as success. And they were seeing another person who lives like I do, very simply, with little to no monthly payment on their rent with owning everything cash, but seems like they're a failure because they've tried all these different businesses and they go, when this guy, when is this guy going to land on something that actually has success? They didn't see the fact that I know the person who's living simply has tried 30 different businesses and one of them is going to click. And when it does, everyone will think they're an overnight success. They'll say, wow, how did that happen? And the person who looks like they're a complete and utter success from a faraway vantage point, they're dangerously close to being poor. And I just wanted to differentiate the difference between failures and people who don't try. If you play the guitar, you have to be bad before you're good, right? I don't play the guitar, so you've never heard me fail at the guitar. So in your mind, I could be better at the guitar because you've never heard me fail. But the person who you heard fail will get better than me. Do you see that? So if you see someone doing something badly, congratulate them because if they stick with it, they'll do it well. It's a shift in the way you take in information and how you execute on your life. 
I've said before that it is good to be bad at something. It is really good to be good at being bad at something, something I pride myself on. I don't mind sucking at stuff. I didn't mind being terrible at stand-up comedy. I didn't mind having my first screenplays or the first I started writing essays on a regular basis about two years ago. I didn't mind my essays being terrible. And even earlier than that, when I started writing in my journal when I was 13 years old, it was really, really, really bad. And it's still not perfect. But from where I started to where I am now is night and day. But you could have said all through those other points that I was a failure. I got my first compliments from the most important people to me, not Chris and Gina, but people outside of that. On the show, I got a compliment from someone who almost never gives me compliments. And their compliment to the show was amazing. They hadn't complimented the show from uh, episode one until 67. It's the same thing with my scripts. I've had a particular person who's very close to me, who's never complimented me on my writing, even though this individual has read tons of my work until now. So it was about 10 years of them reading my stuff, thinking I'm a failure, and now all of a sudden my stuff makes sense. Now I'm coming to a place where I'm right about to get to the point where it's self-evident. You look at any kind of idea, it goes through complete and utter ridicule, and people say that's never going to work. Then they go, oh, I don't know about it. Then eventually it becomes self-evident. And once it becomes self-evident, people pretend they didn't ridicule it at the beginning. So the reason for this convoluted story is that just like when I was telling you in a few episodes ago that you need to go out and try that thing that's been hinting at your head, I want you to remember that it's very important for you to understand that being bad is good. Now, I'm not saying go kick a dog and punch your spouse. That kind of bad is not good. I think we know that. What I'm saying is being bad at a thing is good. You have a crazy notion that you want to start skateboarding and you're 52 years old. Do it. Do it. I promise you that at some point in your life when you're not able to do the things you're able to do right now, you won't look back at it and go, wow, I really am sad that I tried that thing. Rock climbing. There's a lot of reasons I shouldn't do it, but man, it feels good. And it feels even better when I'm done with it and I look at these pictures or I think back and I go, wow, that was so cool. There is an experience that only inside these things you try will you be able to understand them. I can only speak to the ones I've done. There is a picture of me rock climbing that I had the other day with my old ancient GoPro, like GoPro version two. And I took a video and there's a picture I have where I'm looking down my left shoulder and I'm seeing my little brother and my wife. My wife is next to Steven. Steven's my little brother. And Stephen is uh, belaying me. Belaying is just a person who uh, runs the rope while you go up the side of the mountain. I had realized this before, but my favorite part about this picture was this. My life, not metaphorically, was completely in the hands of my brother. If he had let go or slipped when I jump off that mountain at the end where I'm being belayed down and I'm repelling, or if I had fallen and he hadn't grabbed it, I'd die. When he is holding the belay rope for my wife, or my wife is holding it for me, or I'm holding it for her, or I'm holding it for my brother, that trust reaffirms my belief in the human condition. Because here are these people in my life, even if you think that you're independent and you do everything by yourself, you go do this. It's like, I've joked about how Gina and my rock climbing together is like the world's biggest trust fall. It's, it's one of those things that you always see in TV shows, and maybe it's a real thing, but you see them in TV shows where someone has someone fall back into their arms. It's either like a corporate retreat or a marriage retreat. Think about that when you're 20, 15, 30, 40 feet off the ground, even higher, and this person has you in their arms. 
It's possible. People do it all the time. But that is a beautiful thing to convince me of how much people look out for each other and how you really can trust someone like that. And you have to in my case. Now, I'm not saying get into a hobby like that, but once you're inside of something that you are passionate about, you get to see this perspective you never would. Sure, it gets you in shape. Sure, the view is great. Sure, it's amazing to be a part just climbing this rock that is so counterintuitive for what a human can do. But inside any of those hobbies or the other passions, I'm sure there's that different perspective. And changing your perspective is so amazing. It's so beautiful. But just like that long story about me and going up through the ranks, you have to be bad at it first. And all those times, that jack of all trades, master or none, when is Jet going to stick to a job? When is Jet going to do this? When is Jet going to get real? When is Jet going to get serious? My life has been so much more full as far as I see it. And so I'm glad I didn't do any one thing. I'm not trying to pussyfoot when I say that there's nothing wrong with doing one thing. There's nothing wrong with it. You're not a bad person, obviously. But I think that diversity, that multiple multiple perspectives, that pursuing a passion, that gives you something else. It's It lights up a different sector of your life. And I think that's really important. So to wrap it all up, the beginning of this episode was about not letting yourself panic. Because at no point during even a triage situation where there is an actual need to do something that's an emergency situation, even then staying cool-headed is very important. So there's never any reason to panic. Don't believe what you see online and don't, I mean, even the smartest people in the world, even I fall victim to this. That's why I tell you this stuff, guys. Is because I'm more more vulnerable than most. I say that just because I, I think it sounds better. I don't know if I'm more vulnerable than most, but I'm I'm there. You know, I look at it. I'm I'm in social media a lot. And so if you see something and it makes you nervous, go, okay, well, what's the reality? Look around, take a deep breath. Eckhart Tolle says, say to yourself, Can I breathe right now? Something like that. And then you just breathe. Can I breathe right now? Focus on that. And if you can, you're alive. When I was in the gym yesterday. I'm looking around and I'm thinking about the state of the world and I think, wow. And this is true. I had, I just, I just breathed and I breathed again and I started focusing on my breath. I looked up, I was on like a bench press thing and I looked up and I started breathing and I went, I just got another breath that my grandfather didn't, who I love deeply. And I thought, how, how lucky am I? And this was not a sad thought. It was that every breath that I get after the passing of him, and it was just significant to me. Every breath we get, no matter what, is amazing and beautiful and wonderful and something that not everyone has. But I thought, what a true gift that is. And it wasn't something that was written, that was sentimental on a Facebook page that inspired me. It was just a realization, a human realization by having stillness in my life that I was so lucky to have that breath. I am so lucky to have a breath to be able to talk to you right now. I, I feel so much value in being able to help you folks out if I'm able to do that. So focus on that first. And then the second part of this was failure is a ticket at the door of success. I don't know anyone who's great at anything who didn't suck. And everything you've ever done in your life that you are good at right now, maybe it's your job, maybe it's the skill set that you did when you were a kid, you sucked at one point. So be okay with that. And try new things. Try more things. Don't run away from the world because you're scared. Embrace it. So I'm, uh, I'm out of words. I care about you. Be healthy. Be safe. But be real. 
Thank you so much for listening. I'm Jet Dunlap. This was Psychotherapy. <laughs>